by the, by the fact that if you think this has been challenging for you, there has been a constant challenge to me um, to make sure that, that I'm, I'm willing to forsake everything else on behalf of this pathway that we have found. And specifically, um, one of the things he's been doing is he has been challenging the way that I would study and the way that I would preach. Or if I can even use the word preach, I don't know if I do that. But whatever it is I do, he's been changing that. Um, and um, for many years, um, the way that we would study and... Excuse me. Uh, the way that we would come before the Lord would tend to be um, based out of a, a Greek or Hebrew study um, of, of a, a word that would then become a principle for us. And, and I, I love that. I, I still enjoy to do that. And I am not by any means saying that that has gone by the wayside in the least. But I do know that he has changed over the last period of months and asked me um, to be able to come before him in a different way. And um, uh, in the midst of this, one of the things that he has been dealing with is asking me how willing I am to let go of everything, even the pathways that I have known, even the very comfortable, I don't know about you, but when I come before the Lord, even in prayer, um, I'm asking him what he wants us to speak about, or if I'm just coming before him to be with him, um, there are very familiar pathways that are associated to that. And he's asked me to, in many ways, lay those pathways down to find him in new ways. Um, the first way that he did this was by him just coming when I wasn't looking for him. And um, uh, this, this really messed me up because I was always taught that his, uh, his coming was a response to my seeking always. In fact, by definition, we're kind of seekers. We've talked about that. We're those that cry out and appeal unto the Lord to come. And that's so true. But what he wanted to show me, I believe, was that he wanted to come more than I even wanted him to come. And I think he wanted to solidify within me the understanding that it's not just about my ability to, to, to have these pathways that I take or to, to be able to cry out before him or to be able to welcome him or to do some, some thing, some shana-na-na-na that makes him say, oh, I better go there. And he, he really quickly told me that, that really the thing that he cannot refuse above all else is hunger and humility. And the thing that I have found is hunger and humility will put him at the center of things in a way that he is squarely the focus. And oftentimes then he moved me to a place where uh, he, he then went beyond where he would come even when I wasn't asking him to. He actually then went to a place where when I would come before him and ask him, to, to visit or to, to, to bring his presence or, or whatever it might be. That in those moments, as amazing as it was, when I would center my focus on him, I would actually realize that the whole time his focus was already centered on me. It's like when I would position myself and say, okay, now I'm going to see God. Do you guys, please, I know this is uh, Cal at a Newgate face uh, morning, but... Uh, 
I'm sure you've all experienced this, where you decide, like, I'm going to pray and ask God to, to visit me. Or I'm going to pray and I'm just going to ask God to allow me to feel his presence. I'm going to pray and seek him. Whatever that looks like for you. Have you ever had those times where you know what it means to like, okay, you know, whatever's going on in your day. And you kind of decide like you have to get your head right. Some of you have to have, you know, just the right song on. Some of you get out your prayer pillow. Some of you have a prayer blanket. Um, some of you have to have the right type of coffee. You know, whatever it is, the right shoes on, you know, your, your intercessory shoes. Uh, you know, whatever it is that you do, don't act like you don't. Don't act like you don't. I know you do. Some of you, when you come in here to pray all by yourself, it, it's funny. I can tell some of you who's been here praying by what playlist is on on the iPod. So don't tell me that you don't have that kind of stuff. I know. Sometimes I pull in the parking lot and hear you still in here singing to whatever playlist is on the iPod. So... That's just the way it is. We have, those, we have those things that those are the familiar pathways, right? And, and the truth of it is, um, there's nothing wrong with that. But what I really began to find was before I could even get my hair right or whatever it is I need to do to be able to come before him, before I could even get all that stuff straightened out, I would realize as my heart began to focus in on preparing to find him that he was already searching for me. His focus was already coming in on and centering itself on me. And I think that one of the things for me within that is he's trying to break off anything else. He's trying to break off any other pathway that doesn't come out of true proximal devotion. A true desire to be nearer to him. We've said, we said this last Thursday, or excuse me, last Sunday, that any... Identity issue is either a closeness, a proximity issue, or an alignment issue. So what's happening is then, from that point, as he addresses our proximity to him and our alignment to what he's wanting to do, he then addresses the identity things within us, whereby this is, I'm telling you guys, if you'll hear me please... This is affirmation on steroids. This is identity on steroids. This place is the place where we actually come before him and he identifies the places within us of what he's called us to be and who we are. And I'm not even talking about like, um, you know, mighty man kind of stuff. I'm not talking about the stuff where he tries to tell you that you're supposed to go preach like Billy Graham to the millions. I'm not even talking about ministry stuff. I'm just talking about who you are. I'm talking about the stuff that really bothers you in the depths in the depths of who you are in the middle of the night where you go, I don't really know who I am. And there's places in me that I feel like are undefined. I, I really feel restless in this area. And this place, if it, he's, he's clarified it because I honestly thought, as much of us have taught in religious circles for years, that this could be clarified by revelation or articulation. It, I either need a, a, a good enough message or a clear enough ability to articulate that message to get everybody on board with what they're supposed to be. And what I've learned is neither of those will make it and both of those establish religiosity. As wonderful as they are, we need revelation and we need to be articulate. But the truth of the matter is, 
We, we've established so much of our, our focus on those abilities to hear something freshly from God and to be able to be articulate in the way that we present it to people so they will hear our message and respond. And at the end of the day, that is absolutely egocentric. Most of our worship is egocentric, if we're honest. Most of our worship is narcissistic. Sorry. If you don't believe that that's true, then why is it that certain songs move us more than others? Sorry. Me too. Hashtag. Me too. Okay? I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm saying this is real life. If he was really at the center of our worshipful devotion, then it wouldn't require the right song for us to be worshipful in devotion. And I know that right now it is the popular thing for the last 10 years now, more than like 20 years probably, to, to say that this is there's a worship movement that's happening and there's all this worship stuff. Honestly, if I'm very, very honest with you, very, 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 very few times do you actually find worship that is focused on who he is. Most of the worship movement is centered in people's desire to follow a worship leader. We've created fans, not worshipers. I would venture to say that people can more quickly tell you who their favorite worship leader is than they can the last time they were lost in the depths of his presence. It's just true. And he's asking us if we will move past narcissism, if we'll move past what I want, what I need, what I feel, and even our own, and one of the things he's been dealing with me in, he's talking to me about this this morning, is even my own nostalgia. There's certain songs, I'm telling you what, when, when you play some old Kevin Prosh, I am like there. I can be in the depths of hell. And when Palanquin comes on, I'm in his heart. He's even been asking me to give him that. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not sinful. But he's been asking me if I will be willing to want him in spite of everything and not, and not force him to be bound to certain sensations, all of which are centered on me and my tastes and my wants and my appeals and not on him. Because true... Uh, um, God-centered worship, doxology, if you even want to use the philosophical term or the theological term. True-centered focus on God doesn't even require a song. Songs sure help. That's one of the things he's been asking me to do is when I'm driving. Because if you know me, there's music all the time. I just have music nonstop. It's just kind of my thing. If I'm in the car, uh, sometimes I'll listen to uh, to the radio to talk stuff, but... Um, there's, there's most of the time, 80% of the time it's music. And he's been asking me if I will be willing to turn off music and allow him to come, that he wanted to start visiting me in the car. Now, my first question is who's driving? That was my first question to him. Um, cause you know, my thought is, you know, this whole Jesus is my co-pilot thing is, is okay until I'm on the floorboard because his presence shows up at that point. I would prefer pilot. Uh, to co-pilot. 
Um, but so uh, I was asking him about this, and one of the things that he he uh, quickly brought to my attention is he wanted me to shut off music because he wanted to show me that he wants to come even without the songs that I think are associated to him coming. He wants to be with us. And that doesn't fit inside a Bethel-shaped box or a Morning Star-shaped box or a Jesus Culture-shaped box. It just doesn't. So we're going to look this morning at uh, Matthew chapter 16. And uh, I, I, I put the top passage as review. The good, the good news is we've got a good two or three hours that we have to look at this. Um, and uh, Eli brought snacks for everybody. If anybody needs, if everybody gets hungry, we're going to do some loaves and fishes, and we may need to multiply some stuff. But it's all good. Um, the uh, Tasha's got probably. If Scarlett hasn't eaten it yet, there's probably a granola bar in Tasha's purse. Uh, the um, the thing that you find in this wonderful passage in Matthew 16 is this really unique story about uh, Peter that we know that we're familiar with. But the thing that I find to be the most interesting is the context to it. Now, I'm just going to give you the context. I'm not going to go through it verse by, by verse because be, we would be here several hours. But we've recently been talking about this giving of thanks. In fact, specifically, we spent several services talking about the multitude uh, or the multiplying of the um, loaves and fishes for the 4,000 and for the 5,000. And we looked at what that meant and what that was the, the relevance of that for where we are. This passage is what immediately follows the, the, the uh, multiplying of the loaves and fishes for the 4,000. And it's my, uh, it's my opinion that more than likely in the 4,000, it, it was a young girl that actually had, that's not a make or break. If you feel like it's a boy, if you want to you know, hold true and fast to that, God bless you. But in that, I feel like that following uh, that story, both times in Matthew and in Mark, um, when you find in Matthew 16 and Mark 8, this story, both of these times of the multiplying of loaves and fishes to feed the multitude are followed by very specific and severe attacks from religious um, groups. So what that should tell us first immediately is, and if you haven't figured this out, I'll, this maybe here is your sign, okay? The um, when God begins dealing with you and changing and and addressing the way you think, and you actually begin submitting the way you think to Him to where you say, Father, help help my thought press process to be what you want me to think, and help that to be cellular. When you really offer that to Him, there is going to be an onslaught against that process and against the way you think. And I know for me, um, there has over the last probably three weeks, really uh, follow, almost immediately following when we spoke the message about, um, about coming home and about what Thanksgiving was and how, what home was and the association of that. Is right after we spoke that message, there was an absolute onslaught against my identity against what God had said, against what he's wanting to do within this house, against what we're supposed to be, against many of you. Um, there have been specific attacks that have been waged to try to take you out at the knees. 
And, and we have to know, number one, that's scriptural. That doesn't mean that you're in sin. Because what we've been taught to do is as soon as there's an attack from the enemy, we start to try to look around and figure out where we've messed up. Oh, I'm in sin somewhere. We go into repentance mode. Isn't it interesting that as soon as something like that happens, where is our first focus? Me. Even in our own shame, even in our own condemnation of I'm in sin, I've got a problem, I've done something wrong. Where is the focus? I, I, I. Because the enemy understands that if he can drive us into um, some type of, um, of, of introspection, some type of internal analysis that our focus on what God has said and the identity that only comes from us focusing on who he is, is severed. I have, how, when is the last time you've went into introspection and came out better? Please remind me, when is the last time you've went into deep introspection about all of the things you do wrong and how, how all the mistakes you've made and came out feeling like, well, I just feel light as a bird. I could go anywhere. That doesn't happen. Why? Because introspection and analysis leads to condemnation and shame. It's just the way it works. The more you focus on you, the more you're reminded of who you are without him. You don't need that. Because who you are, apart from him, doesn't exist anymore. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So in the midst of this understanding, it is um, absolutely associated to the thought that we cannot go introspective. I'm not saying we don't analyze ourselves to try to be better people. That's a good idea. But when you are feeling like things are being shaken within you, the best thing to do is not to focus further in. And I've even been, uh, Tosh and I have been trying to do this with each other. I don't remember why. We just kind of started doing it. Um, do you ever uh, just offhand say things like, man, I really messed that up. You ever do things like that? You ever say things like that? Or think, man, I, gosh, I really blew that. Or that was. We've started stopping one another. When we say that, don't say that. Yeah, it's a mistake. It's no big deal. We just need to stop downing ourselves so much. We just do. Sometimes we live in a self-deprecation and we really don't understand it. I won't tell you what the world calls that when you're uh, downing yourself. Um, but you just need to stop downing yourself. You just do. The idea is, who has he said you are? And, and obviously what we need to do is remember, what are we supposed to do? So right in the midst of this, what we have to see is, Jesus give thank, gives thanks, excuse me, the, the multitudes are fed, and the immediate response is, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees show up, and what they do is, they begin to be critical of Jesus, and begin to analyze what he is doing, or who he is, and begin to ask questions like, oh, will you do this? Can't you do this? Will you show us a sign? They begin to bait him with the, has God really said? Is this really what it is? They begin to follow this incredible thing of, of God saying what he is doing, and God showcasing himself with this thing. And a couple interesting things. Number one, do you realize that immediately following, this attack was clearly 
uh, um, powerful enough because the disciples that just moments ago had seen for the second time, for the second time, thousands of people be supplied for by a child's lunch. Do you realize that what they do immediately is they go into introspection? What do they start saying? They reason among themselves and think, oh, we don't have bread. Do you realize how ridiculous that is? That would be like you getting in your car and your gas, you know that your gas tank was empty. You're on E when you, maybe you don't do this. Tasha's in here. Yeah, Tasha's in here. I can share this. There is a guarantee that at all times her car, if it's at home, it's on E. If it's at home, I just guarantee you, I don't know how that happens, because I, I think there have even been times that like we go to town and I stop and fill it up. If we if she goes to work the next day and comes home, if it's in the garage, it's out of gas. It's just a guarantee. I, I, I really don't know how this works, but somehow her car is just always on E. But if you go out to your car and it's on E and you know it's on E and you start it and it's full... And you go, wow, that's really interesting. And the next time you go out to your car and it's on E and you start it and it's full. And this happens two or three times. I venture to say that the next time that the gas light comes on, you're going to go, hey, this thing's going to get full. (laughs) So imagine for them seeing that they took up 12 baskets. And remember that we talked about these baskets that they collected that was left over from the thousands. Keeping in mind 5,000 men. The average was three children per family. So by the time you factor in wives and children, you're talking like 15 to 18,000 people. It's insane. And they still had 12 baskets left over. And we remember we talked about the baskets were baskets that were like the basket Paul hid in. These are man-sized baskets of bread. 12. Seven the next time. So... That's the, that's the background of this, the backdrop of this. And yet the first thing they do is they go, oh, we don't have lunch. Are you kidding me? And so Jesus uh, begins to speak to them about that. And he says, why do you reason? Why are you analyzing? Why are you being uh, uh, immediately going to that, that, uh, that analysis, that introspection of what currently is rather than what's possible? He's trying to change the way they think. I honestly believe that the reason for the loaves and fishes, more so than even feeding the hungry, was he was trying to change the way the disciples thought. He was trying to change the way they thought. And if you think about it, the interesting thing is never again throughout all of the book of Acts that you find the early church, never again do you find them in need of food. Never again do you find them saying, we don't have enough food. Why? Because the way they thought had changed. I'm not saying they weren't ever presented with a challenge, but they were never presented with a challenge that vocalized, that caused them to vocalize where's food going to come from. Why? Because the way they thought in association to supply had changed. He's trying to change the way we think. He's not trying to give us a miraculous food supply one time and then have us come up with some grand idea of how we need to have uh, a bigger food pantry for the next time. That's what we would do in church, isn't it? A need arises one time, God supplies, then we all get together and establish a board about how we need a bigger food pantry so that when more people come in the next time, we have enough food to feed them with. 
He's not trying to give us a formula. He's trying to change the way we think. And what happens is he then speaks to the, the disciples and he talks to them about the, the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I'm going to say this part really quickly because I, I, I could really get lost here and we're not even at the part I want to talk about yet. So he gets to, uh, to this part about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he tells them to be careful of the leaven. There's three leavens in the New Testament that Jesus references that we're to be cautious of or careful of. We've talked about this. One is the leaven of Caesar. One is the leaven of the Pharisees and the other is the leaven of the Sadducees. You find the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees are similar yet different. It is my opinion that the leaven of Caesar is the leaven of the world system or the political system. It's the mindset or mentality that tells you you have to accomplish something that, that is deemed success for you to be accepted and whole within society. That's the Caesar leaven. Then you have the Pharisaical leaven. The Pharisaical leaven is the leaven that says that when there is some, it's religious leaven. It's the leaven that says that when there is some challenge, I have to separate myself from that challenge to retain the appearance of wholesomeness and holiness. So the religious leaven is more directly associated to the fact that I have to, at all costs, appear godly so as to retain my identity or my affirmation as godly. At the own cost of relationships and community and culture and family and devotion and vulnerability and plus, 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 plus. We've said before, but the leaven of the Pharisees is what happened when, when there was the woman caught in the act of adultery and they all picked up stones. And what he said is, he without sin cast the first stone. You know that story. In fact, do you realize that actually the, the language that Jesus used, what he was actually pointing out wasn't that they just had sin in their life. It was pointing out the fact that most of them were having affairs. Because it was very, very, very common in that day to not only have a wife, but typically you would either put away your wife when she got to a certain age and take a younger wife, um, or you would have um, uh, you know, uh, a mistress of some kind or this other woman uh, oftentimes living with you. It was very culturally acceptable. And so what he was saying to them is, how is this acceptable that you're going to kill this woman for the very same thing that most of you are engaged in? That is... The thing that the, the, the leaven of the, the Pharisees does to us. Now, the leaven of the, uh, the Sadducees, I think, is a blend leaven. Not like a blend wine. A blend wine is very nice. You'll enjoy it. A blend leaven, on the other hand, is a whole other thing. This blended leaven is a religious political leaven. And I, I think I put it there on your sheet. Uh, the leaven of the Sadducees is, is the leaven of the world system religious spirit. This is the spirit that drives someone to cater to the wants of people, which is that world system, but in the name of God, only to advance their own personal agenda. And, and this is directly out of the um, theological workbook of the New Testament. Sadducees denied the existence of the miraculous and prided themselves in a logical faith. 
they saw themselves as intellectually astute and to, uh, excuse me, too intellectually astute to believe in the miraculous. And, and, uh, and they actually came to the point that they, they didn't believe in the miraculous, they didn't believe in the supernatural, they didn't believe in the spiritual or the things of the kingdom because they were too intellectually astute. So they actually felt like their ability to be intellectual and to understand the things of God made it silly for them to accept the miraculous, the supernatural, or the spiritual. See, the, the Pharisees believed that miracles happened. They just didn't happen in that day. The Sadducees believed they never happened. That made them sad, you see. And so what you find when you look at this idea of what the Sadducees are, the, the leaven that he tells them to be careful of. Now, we're going to tie some stuff together real quick and then move on. So what you actually find is that Jesus later, um, three chapters later, identifies the leaven of the Sadducees as hypocrisy. That is what the leaven was. Their leaven was defined by Jesus as hypocrisy. Um, uh, hypocrisis or hypocrisy literally means to wear a mask. Do you realize that the original Greek and Latin definition of a hypocrite was an actor? That's what they called their actors. Their movie stars of the day were called hypocrites. They were actors. It was the ability to wear a mask. So what he says is, first of all, that the leaven of the Pharisees or Sadducees was hypocrisy or the wearing of a mask. He further defines the, the, um, the leaven itself is the doctrine of something. So what he is actually saying here is to beware of the leaven or the doctrine of wearing a mask. I'm going to say that again so, that all, so we can tie this up and make sense. So what Jesus actually warns them against is the doctrine of wearing a mask. And the reason for this is because we as people can become acclimated and assimilated very easily. We have the ability as human beings to walk into a room to see how everybody else acts and to replicate that action, don't we? I would venture to say if you get in a room with a, a, a certain uh, group of people who are, are uh, let's say they're all sipping tea or they're all, uh, you know, they're all very, you know, they have their, their pinky. I think you have to flip the pinky when you have a saucer. It's just the way it works. You take it and you flip the pinky. Uh, whatever it is they're doing, you do that. You know, whatever it is, uh, a certain group of people, if that group of people, uh, some people are more this way than others, but have you ever met somebody that you can tell uh, who they're hanging out with by the way they dress and what music they're listening to. Absolutely. The way, the way they dress, who, how they talk, the music they listen to, the vehicles they drive, the things they're sharing on Facebook. That's a whole other thing. Uh, you know, all you can tell quickly that they've changed their crowd, right? Wait a minute. Two weeks ago, you were into Leonard Skinner. And now you're listening to Ice Cube. Something has changed. Right? So the, the idea of this is that Jesus is actually warning them 
that we have to be careful of the doctrine of wearing a mask. Why? Because as soon as you decide to wear the mask, you actually remove yourself from the possibility of miracle that is only accessed through the gateway of vulnerability. You cannot wear a mask and be vulnerable at the same time. That's why, and, and if I can be honest with you, I'm going to be real tough and then we're going to move on and I'll be nice again. Some of us are still trying to figure out how to get our mask off. Some of us are still struggling with the mask. If you're like me, what you realize is the mask is multiple layered. So as soon as I take the mask off, I realize there was another mask underneath it. And another mask underneath it. And the scary thing is that every once in a while I get a peek of what's really there and it freaks me out. We've got to stay put long enough to be exposed before him and be vulnerable before him so he can actually deal with the real thing. But some of us haven't seen the real thing in so long that when we see it, it absolutely terrifies us. Because within church especially, we have, many of us, been indoctrinated with the leaven of the Sadducees. The leaven of the Sadducees is that I'm going to put on a mask, and in many ways, you see pastors across the United States that do this, that they, through a religious mindset, they, in the name of God... Preach a doctrine to help them establish and assemble their own gain. Building their kingdom. That is the leaven of the Sadducees. And so what actually happens is we get to a point then that, that we no longer will really allow ourselves to be vulnerable before the Lord because we we actually get in fear of losing this kingdom that we think we're building. So Jesus, know that that's the context to what we see next. I'm going to give you the next part really quick. So Jesus, out of that context of telling them, beware of this leaven, beware of the mask, beware of being something or uh, 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 appearing to be something that you're not either to pre prevent yourself from being seen for what you are or in some cases to appear to be something because appearing to be that can get you further with certain groups than being what you are. The fastest growing churches in my opinion, we call them seeker-friendly churches. I really don't like that term. I think it's consumer-friendly. The fastest-growing churches in the world are not, they're not really seeker-friendly because seeker-friendly means that people show up to seek for something. People aren't really showing up seeking for the Lord. They're showing up to consume a quick meal. Consumer-friendly churches. Consumerism is what sells in America. Just give me the cliff notes. I want the five-minute version of something. 
consumerism. You realize that that's why it's become so popular to try to be done with church in 50 minutes. Why? It's consumerism. I need it and I want a condensed version of it so I can get back to my life. And it is impossible for him to be at the center of a consumer-based service. It's impossible. So he then speaks to the disciples and he turns and he asks them the most important question that's ever been asked, in my opinion, maybe in history. He asks the disciples and says, who do you say that I am? Who do men, excuse me, who do men say that I am? Excuse me, I want to say that correctly. Who do men say that I am? He's asking them this question. I just throw this here for you and we're going to move on. He's asking them this question because what he's actually testing within them is if the very same thing that he has just addressed, which is pharisaical mindset and cynicism. I'm going to say that again. One of the things that you find that is the most directly associated to the religious leaven is cynicism. Why? They're skeptics of everything. They address everything with an analyzation or a cynicism that says this has to be logical. If you can't get from your head to your heart, you're not going to get it. And if you will not be willing to allow God to do things in your life that you don't understand and can't explain or rationalize away with a scripture and verse, you're never going to go places that there are not maps for yet. You realize what made Alexander, Alexander the Great, is he actually went to a place that there were mountains that nobody had crossed before. There was nobody within civilization, that the, the, the Greek civilization that had maps for the other side of these mountains. And he said, I want to conquer that too. That's what made him, took him from Alexander to Alexander the Great. Why? Because he was willing to conquest in a place there were no maps for yet. I want to discover what's been undiscovered, not just rediscover what somebody else has already seen. So Jesus says to them, who do men say that I am? And he's asking them this question because he's actually asking the group as a whole if they've come past cynicism. If they've come past a point where in order for them to feel better about themselves or in order for them to feel something about themselves. So many of us, I think I put this on social media the other day, so some of you may have heard already. But the reality is so many of us deal with or try to find our identity based on what others are around us. And anytime you compare yourself to any other thing other than what he said you are, you're going to compare yourself. It, first of all, is automatically going to take you into cynicism. You're analyzing something you shouldn't be analyzing. And you're going to start to pick people apart in ways that you shouldn't. And it will tear and it will claw and it will bite at the exact thing that God is trying to establish in culture and community and family whereby we lift one another up. Because what it requires that we do then is for me to be elevated, you have to come down. For me to go up, you must come lower. And that's not the way it works. Because scripturally, for me to become elevated, you go up. I celebrate your victory and in that I go higher. 
Isn't that what he said to Cain? If you do well in your brother's offering being accepted above yours, won't you be exalted as well? If you don't, sin crouches at the door. So what he's asking us in these circumstances are, will you engage in cynicism that allows you to either A, stay what you are. It authorizes you to stay what you are when you find somebody else that you're better than. Have you ever noticed this before? That when you really, uh, in certain circumstances, if we're honest with ourselves, when we're doing this whole comparison thing, we oftentimes pick people that we already know are not as good as something as we are. You want to know why? Because it requires that so that I can be complacent in where I currently am. It affirms me above them. Or when we start to look outside analytically and begin to look critically, what it does is it then empowers our guilt and shame that we're not what somebody else is when I was never called to be what they are. I was called to inherit their victory and to celebrate where they are so that I can come up to where they are, not pull them down from where they are, and in doing so, stay in some rejection, uh, egocentric, narcissistic shame game that keeps me down. The only comparison that is legal for you is to what he said you're supposed to be. The challenge is to start finding what he says you're supposed to be. So Jesus then says, who do men say that I am? Have you noticed at this point Jesus has been called Beelzebub? Jesus has been called uh, a false prophet. Jesus has been called of the devil. Jesus has been called all kinds of stuff. They don't say any of that stuff. Have you noticed that? Isn't that weird? He asked the disciples, and they don't say any of the really nasty things that, that people have been saying about Jesus probably more frequently. What he says is, a prophet more than a prophet, some say Elijah. What is he, what is he testing within them? Where's their analysis? And he then looks at Peter, and he asks this question, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Isn't it interesting that the response of Peter, where Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. What happens? Peter speaks about the identity of Jesus. And as soon as his eyes get on the identity of who God is or who Jesus is in this instance and recognize that, it then is something that empowers Peter to hear who he is. Because Jesus' response is, upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. The thing that Jesus did was he recognized that as soon as Peter stepped outside of even what the group was saying, because do you realize that nobody else in the group was authorized at that point to hear what their identity was? Who else does Jesus speak over? No one. Why? Because until it, it requires that their eyes be first set on who he is, until our eyes are set on who our father is, we will never be able to be authorized to really hear or understand who we are. And so the upon this rock, do you realize upon this rock, I will build my church. Do you realize that the rock that the church is supposed to be built on is the understanding of who God their father is so they can have the understanding of who they're supposed to be. That is what the church is supposed to be built upon. You wonder why the church 
is not built well and is shaky? Because the church doesn't know who it's supposed to be. You wonder why the church doesn't know who it's supposed to be? Because we've been unwilling to be positioned long enough to look and speak what he is. And we've been unwilling to go deep enough to a point to where we really find him in proximal devotion. To go deep enough at a point where we are near enough to him and aligned him to see who he really is. So as he defines himself as good, as he defines himself as faithful, as he defines himself as a loving father that gives good gifts and desires to fill us with the fullness of God. I think I read that somewhere. Fill you with the fullness of God? That should mess you up. I'm to be filled with the fullness of him? It's impossible that I could contain that. But he says he's going to do it. So when we get to that point, all identity comes back to his identity. But until we're willing to get our eyes off of us and an egocentric mentality or our eyes off of our feelings or our eyes off of our challenges or our shame or our rejection or our hurt or our bitterness or whatever else that it's on until or need until we get our eyes off of that. See, we've spent so long focusing on this fickle God that we never knew what he really wanted. Have you ever been around somebody that it's almost like they're bipolar? You never know what mood you're going to get. Maybe not. If you've not, you might want to stop and think because it might be you. <laughs> you know, if you've never been around somebody like that, then you just might want to do some, just go home and look in the mirror for a little while because it might be you. I think I remember, I think, I think it was Aaron that told me this one time, but it's, it's like the old saying in business, if you're, not on the, if you're not at the table, then you're probably on the menu. So it's, it's that thing. If you've been around somebody like that before that you never know what you're going to get. One day they may be like super happy and up. And the next day, if you just say hi, they might want to rip your face off for no reason. And you're thinking, whoa, I, what did I do? Absolutely nothing. Right? That's really how we thought God is. Is he in the mood to heal today or not? Is he in the mood to visit us today or not? Is he in the mood to love me today or not? Is he in the mood to accept me today or not? We've not said it like that. But we've kind of thought that way. I mean, I've driven to church on a Sunday morning, 6 o'clock in the morning. I'm coming down 40 and actually goes through my mind. I wonder if, I wonder if God's really going to come today. I wonder if he really wants to visit with us today. Do we realize how ridiculous that question is? At what, it is impossible for him to not be good. It's impossible for him to not be faithful. It's just who he is. So in the midst of that, we have, we have built our theology around a fickle God that we never know what mood he's in or never know what he really wants to do or what he feels like that day. And so then we can't really determine what kind of service we're going to have. Well, we might just, I don't really know if God feels like doing much, so we're just going to have kind of just a quiet one today. We're just going to worship. Maybe I'll give a half hand. 
Maybe change the light bulb. Simba. You know, that thought is, is where we, and we say these things and we think, well, you know, it's, you never know, you know, God, you know, he's not fickle. He doesn't, he doesn't vacillate from wanting you to being offended and off-putted by you. He doesn't go from being ashamed. You realize he's never been ashamed of you? Even in the worst, he's not ashamed by your actions. He's not ashamed by you. He's not, he's not at one point loving and at the other point some, some dad that sits up there like he got up on the wrong side of the bed and didn't have his morning coffee and just really wants to rip your head off when you ask him a question. You know, I, I, some of the most delightful times I've had in the Lord is when I've asked him questions that I thought were off limits to even ask God. What I've really learned lately is I don't think there is a question that's off limits to ask him. If I ask him with humility, say, Father, help me to understand this. Those things are who, it, it, it makes up who he is. And in the midst of that, that's what he's trying to get at with the disciples. One last thing and I'll, I'll shut up. Do you realize that the very next verse, okay, this is really cool. Leslie already knows where I'm going, but I'm going to tell it anyway because I, I, it's, it's worth it. Do you realize that the very next verse, what happens is that Jesus says the whole business about him going to the cross and Peter says, no, Lord, and Jesus responds to Peter, get thee behind me. Hang on just a second. Let me just go back and make sure we're all on the same page. So within this, do you realize Jesus goes from Peter, upon this rock will I build my church, to the next section of verses, the next conversation we see between Jesus and Peter is, Get thee behind me, Satan. So there's something that is so powerful within this context of what it means for him to be calling out who Jesus is and subsequently then Jesus calling Peter who he is upon this rock. The church is to be established upon the identity of who the father is and subsequently on the understanding of their identity. Because do you realize that the church has nothing to do with this, this uh, assembly? The actual definition of the Greek word church was a council of people that walked in wisdom to decide what was best for the community. That's what the church was. The church were, were like the, the, the tribal elders that would assemble to determine what was best for the people. That's what they were judges. That's what we're supposed to be, is we're supposed to be those that the world is looking to because we don't have the answer, but I know that the Lord does. He is the desire of the nations. So within that, Jesus says, upon this rock of who you are, will I build my church? The very next thing he says is, Get thee behind me, Satan, and notice he doesn't take back the promise. Do you realize that Jesus goes from upon this rock while I build my church to get thee behind me, Satan? I don't, I've had bad days. Jesus has never called me Satan. I've had really bad days. I've never been called Satan. Do you realize there's two times that Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan? 
The first time was whenever it was the uh, turning uh, uh, stones into bread in the temptation of the wilderness. Miraculous provision. Identity. If you're really the son of God. Identity. Then you see this thing that threatens identity. Are you really the son? Do you really have to go to the cross? Get thee behind me, Satan. Why? Because that's what he picks at is your identity. But notice how good God is that even in the midst of this thing where Satan, uh, or excuse me, uh, Peter says something that is strong enough that Jesus calls him Satan? Seriously? And so in the midst of that, he still doesn't take back what he said. You know why? Because that's not how God does stuff. So why do we act like he does? Why do we act like that Him doing something and calling us something or us being what we're supposed to be, followed by us messing up. Why do we act like that puts us back to square one? Why do we act like that that a deposit, do you realize that the deposit that he makes into your account, there is not, it is not possible for you to make a withdrawal big enough to deplete that account back to where you are before he made the deposit. It's not possible. You could be called Satan by Jesus. And it still wouldn't be enough. Do you realize that's how potent and powerful it is when we start to understand who we are? And he's going to change the way he deals with us. So one of the other things that we have to see is when this stuff starts happening, when you start really figuring out who you are and your identity becomes clear, we have to be careful because it motivates some of our speech. Peter thought he was saying some good stuff to Jesus, but oh no, you don't have to go to the cross. Why? Well, he just told me I'm the rock that the church is going to be built upon. I got some stuff to say. I got a lot of problems with you people. It's a festivus for the rest of us. So when you're talking about what it means For Jesus to say this, I think it's incredible. So I would just like to say this in closing. Over all of you prophetically, there is nothing you can do that's going to make him love you any more than he loves you right now. And there's equally nothing he can do, nothing you can do, excuse me, that's going to make him love you any less than he loves you right now. It's impossible. There's nothing you can do that's going to cause him to walk back on what he said you are. There's nothing you can think or say or do that will cause him to walk back the promise that he's spoken over you and the identity of who he said you are. There's nothing in the universe that is powerful enough to negate his promise over you. There's no circumstance, there's no situation that's big enough to deplete the resources of what he said you are. Because when he said it, it's established. And no word out of the mouth of God will return to him void. No promise is going to return to him unfulfilled. It's going to come to pass. So I, I bless you in this pursuit and I speak over this house that it is, is more, than our, more, more than even our desire 
to know who we are. We desire first to know who he is, knowing that the only true identity comes in that. The only true understanding comes in that. And we're not going to be bound by a mask. We throw off, Father, every mask that we have, even if it means feeling vulnerable and exposed, even if it feels uh, impossible and difficult and, and something that we, we didn't think we could ever be positioned in. We push those things aside and we recognize that